You are listening to a podcast from The National. You are listening to the 100th episode of the Business Extra podcast. It's also our final show of 2018. So we're marking both occasions by bringing you some of our favorite conversations from the past year. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, and the voices we've selected for this episode will provide a wide look at various sectors in the UAE and abroad, including healthcare, oil, and trade. But we'll start off with one of the country's leading entrepreneurs. Sagan Yalsen is the founder and CEO of sellanycar.com, as well as other startups. When he sat with our Chris Nelson in July, Yalsen talked about the challenges he faced setting up new businesses in the UAE after coming from a different outlook in Germany. And he talked about how the government's new 10-year visa plans are beneficial to aspiring entrepreneurs such as himself. You, you already had set up businesses in Germany. What to you made the UAE uh, an attractive place to come and look at to, to set up businesses here rather than, than within Europe? The government goes in the same direction I would go. That's really, really important. Like, if I'm, I built companies in Germany just a couple of years ago. I've invested probably two million euros, well above two million dollars, mm-hmm. and I felt like I was fighting to establish a business which is ultimately beneficial for society. I was, uh, I considered myself as fighting against the. Uh, the financial authorities mm-hmm. against actually government in general. If you look at labor law, it's always against employers. Mm-hmm. If you look at tax law, it's not really uh, motivating. Mm-hmm. So I felt like the return on investment uh, will be higher in, in, in Dubai, and mm-hmm. not only Dubai, in the UAE mm-hmm. in general. So we've, uh, we have 17 companies in the UAE in every emirate. So mm-hmm. uh, I felt like this is the place we go. We see with recent changes in law mm-hmm. how entrepreneurship is supported, right? And this was something which th- these discussions were going on in the past 10 years. Yeah. What has happened today is actually mm-hmm. just uh, as a result of discussions and the... the uh, realization of the necessity to support entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs hire people, entrepreneurs import people, entrepreneurs make sure people stay in the country and and can feed themselves. Um, This is something why I'm here. Now, the major difference is in Germany, it costs uh, close to nothing to build a company, legally speaking. Mm -hmm. It's very fast to set up, but then you have an annoyance for years. And and once it works out, they take half of it. Mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually on net terms, it's actually almost 75% of what you end up paying in tax uh, of your income, which is uh, not acceptable, especially because you went all through all these growth pains mm-hmm. and uh, were uh, in disadvantage anyway when you compare it to employees. Now, in Dubai, this is not the case. In Dubai, we have a balance, I believe, um, and this is not only Dubai, in the UAE in general, we have a balance uh, and a, a slight bias or skew towards employers, which is actually ultimately beneficial for society in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's basically what, what I was looking for. I was, I was looking for a ground uh, where entrepreneurs can flourish, right? And we can build businesses. We are still not there. I mean, there's still 
uh, bit of limitations which I believe will be solved. In the beginning, it was even worse. Licensing issues, uh, figuring out where to plug in your e-commerce. I mean, when we started, e-commerce wasn't a, a, a license you could just acquire. Mm-hmm. It was it was general trading combined with free zones, combined with logistics. and it, We basically had to build our own legal framework, mm-hmm. which was expensive. My, mm-hmm. my first contract, uh, actually my first invoice from my lawyers was a quarter million dollars just to identify what's going on. And at the end of the day, they didn't know what's going on because practice and law were two different worlds. Yeah. Right. So this has no precedent, I guess. Yeah. We basically had to just uh, learn along the way, and I believe we have paved the way for many entrepreneurs and pioneered entrepreneurship in the online sphere uh, very early on. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy that we've done that. Probably, uh, realistically speaking, we have probably created a hundred thousand jobs. Yeah. And not only setting up businesses uh, is what is your uh, one of your focuses. You're also a visiting instructor on entrepreneurship at Canadian University of Dubai. Um, it's, it seems obvious that your giving back to society through growing entrepreneurship is extremely important to you. Um, where, where, does that, where does that drive for, for that, um, that, uh, that um, uh, side of things come from? You never build businesses alone. I mean, at the end of the day, over time, the CEO or the founder becomes less and less relevant in the success of the business, right? Um, and you need talent. So we need to make sure that we have them here. We can't keep on importing people. They're very expensive and they're not really uh, loyal in the first two years. And they're always on the edge of leaving again, right? So you need to have people here who were born and raised here or who have been uh, here for a decade and who want to stay here. And this is why I wanted to teach what I have learned. And if even if I convert 1% of those people into entrepreneurs, I've probably created 100 jobs just mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for the, within that course. So it was really, really important. It's, it's a low-hanging fruit. Every entrepreneur is building teams. Mm-hmm. Teams... Uh, get payroll so they actually feed society I believe this is the best charity you can do uh, without actually being the traditional meaning of charity it's actually the most beneficial for society just to build companies which are yielding right which can which can survive you that's really important now what we also see is the government is going towards the right direction what I was criticizing before is giving people short-term horizons uh, two-year visas mm. basically means I'll trust you for another two years, but after that, I don't know if you're going to stay here. Mm. Now, I have a German passport. I wasn't really worried about it, but there, there are people who are always shaky when they're actually uh, about to renew their visas. You don't know what the political situation you're in. How can you plan a life if your visa is two years? Mm. So this is great. Ten-year visa is the right step. Mm-hmm. I believe it should be unlimited at one point of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a full political overview, so at the end of the day, there might be other reasons why it's delayed, but Mm -hmm. it goes into the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, Ownership is very important. Building companies, uh, giving away uh, the majority of your company, even if it's just on paper, is not how you maintain long-term horizons Mm -hmm. for people. So what do we see? People come and go. Mm -hmm. We don't want that. We want them to stay here. We want them to plan retirement here. Mm -hmm. 
but you need to have uh, laws which encourage that mm-hmm. and uh, we're going there that's that's great but and i hope it's not too late uh, to to actually change all of it mm-hmm. and uh, that's basically what i'm happy to see but it, again it shows this is happening all within a decade mm. these changes in other developed markets would take decades probably yeah. decades yeah, yeah. and it, even if it would change so here if something is in that needs to be changed it does happen mm. and that's good it's it's like entrepreneurship in, in business you if it doesn't work you pivot away yeah. in march the business extra podcast did a two-part report on the status of the healthcare sector in the uae I spoke with Foundation Holdings' Abhishek Sharma about the growth of the industry in the UAE, especially when compared to other developed nations. We are literally coming off what I would say is a golden age in healthcare. And that's globally what the statistics show is uh, it took a few million years to increase life expectancy by 11 years. So if someone was living, let's call it the average was 48, they're actually now living till 59. In the last two decades, that expectancy has gone up by almost 30 years. So the magic of technology, better education, awareness is helping people live longer, live healthier, if that's easy to believe. And also, actually, that means there's a systemic shift in what people will do once retirement and these concepts strike in. So I think globally, there's been a big shift. In the GCC itself, uh, Mustafa, I came back late 07, early 08. Those were the days when uh, oil was 130. Burj Khalifa was actually starting up and real estate was on fire. Luckily, at that point for us, there was only one healthcare company in the entire GCC, which was listed. And if one fast forwards today, which is a decade later, there are more than a dozen now healthcare companies. So one has become 12. Market capitalization has gone from 150 million to over 12 billion of listed companies in the GCC. And despite oil going from 150 to 30 to uh, 100 and back down to the 60s, 70s range it is, these sectors have shown they're here to stay, they're a must-have, and actually they've seen exponential growth. So it's almost because of the huge potential they have these are your low-risk industries, which then on a risk-adjusted basis are probably the most must-have sectors to have. I mean, it's fascinating, the, the scale of, of, of how the health sector has grown in the last decade. Um, and, and certainly um, when you know other industries were suffering in the wake of the financial crisis, we could see that there was still growth in area in industries like healthcare because of the population because of you know the factors you were talking about in terms of attitudes to healthcare demand what people were looking for people could could pay for it and then of course and we'll get into this a bit later um, you know the regulation changed where mandatory insurance came in in certain areas which mm-hmm. then obviously brought in new opportunities um, but is there if if I can kind of close this discussion off with have we have you say there was a golden age has that golden age tapered off is or is there still room to grow so i think you know there is probably not enough credit given to the ue government and the visionary leadership in how they've approached healthcare and education so one of the key things the ue government as part of ue vision 2021 has highlighted that their mission is to have a world class healthcare system in the UAE. 
Now it's only 2018, so we still have three more years. And it isn't just a mission statement. They have given 10 key tangible, measurable outcomes they would like to see from a better sort of a healthier population to quality to accreditation. What they have tried to address very cleanly is three big global challenges, which are to do with access, affordability, and at the same time, quality of healthcare overall. So I think we're far, far, far away from actually tapering off because uh, if you just take the example of diabetes, the tsunami of diabetes is hitting everyone globally. In the GCC and in India, if we're sad, we eat. If we're happy, we still eat. So I think, you know, we will find newer and newer and newer ways to keep falling sick. And uh, with the advent of technology, medicine and the UAE leadership and the GCC leaderships and the Indian leaderships, the job of the government will be to keep its uh, citizens more healthy, more engaged. So the opportunity is going to remain. Um, but, you know, specifically what Foundation Holdings is looking at, as, as I understand it, is is one segment of, of that opportunity in particular, because, you know, you, you mentioned Elnor Hospitals before, which is a big player in this mm -hmm. country. Um, uh, we have NMC Healthcare, another big player, and sort of these sort of straight up providers. Um, but you're looking at a different segment. Uh, what would you call that segment? It's not it's not the low income segment. It's sort of the mass segment. Is that is that what you describe it as? Yes, yeah, so I think, you know, one, we've been very fortunate in our journey and that we've been able to uncover the secret. And it really is probably, you know, the best kept secret in healthcare so far. So, you know, as I moved back, as I moved with my family in the early 90s, of course, Dubai, UAE, Abu Dhabi was a dramatically different place. One of the things which people come from the US, UK, Lebanon, and so on to Dubai and Abu Dhabi, they admire the pace of change. That pace of change, of course, often is symbolized by the buildings and by the infrastructure which is constructed. That infrastructure has not been done physically by most of the expats or the visionary leadership. It's actually the blue-collar workers, your Baladia workers, the guys who serve coffee. A lot of them have put in their hard work to build the nation along with the rest of us. Historically, this segment has been a neglected segment for different reasons, financially not attractive, it was uh, also there wasn't enough awareness of what the segment is going through. With our journey with Al-Noor Hospitals, what we realized is about a decade ago, there was a huge opportunity to create a market leader and a brand in the top of the segment, which was actually where Al-Noor came and took pole position. It was a category killer. Now, of course, there are players like Cleveland Clinic and so on who have come at the top of the segment. Similarly, we looked and said, where is that Al-Noor for the bottom of the pyramid? So let's call it the bottom of the pyramid. We literally saw it's a fragmented segment. It's something which is just picking up with the advent of insurance. So in Abu Dhabi, when insurance came, outpatient visits went up by 15% a year. Insurance claims went up by 40% a year. This segment has yet to see that massive potential unleashing on the segment itself. So what we saw is we have taken and seen through the fog and said, there is a huge opportunity to create a category killer, is opportunity to create a national brand. And that brand is something where we said we're going to be consolidating a lot of the mom and pop shops, 
addressing a brand people trust and believe in and that company we've created is called Right Health. One of the biggest business stories of the year related to an ongoing trade war between the US and China. In March, we spoke to trade experts about the matter, including Taina Sateri, trade counselor of the European delegation in Abu Dhabi. She spoke about how the situation has a huge effect on the EU and global markets. From what, from what I'm hearing is that trade doesn't sit still and trade relations don't sit still. That These negotiations take years. I mean, the EU and the GCC has been talking about a uh, free trade agreement for some time now. That's that's an ongoing thing. By the time that's concluded, uh, I don't know how long the process would be. Um, but And in between, other factors come in. So I think that it's worth mentioning that short-term considerations obviously play a part, but trade relations are very, very long-term and big picture. Yeah, for sure. And uh, as you mentioned, it's true, these uh, trade negotiations, they take a long time. Uh, it has taken a long time, actually, for the WTO, the World Trade Organization, to come what it is now. Uh, we think this is a big achievement and we shouldn't uh, lose the sight. Uh, of course, for example, EU uh, with the EU, US has a long history. U.S. is the most important uh, export uh, market for the EU products. Is, is that a lot of that has to do with cars? That's a big factor, right? A big part. Yeah, uh, cars, uh, machinery, but also chemicals, uh, agri-food. It's uh, several, several things. And of course, I mean, for example, EU and U.S. are so much, I mean, if it's going well for the EU trade, it's going well, for the U.S. trade, and the, because we are so much interlinked, mm -hmm. and also, for example, for the investments, so the EU uh, is investing most in the U.S. and similarly, U.S. to the EU. So we are interlinked, mm -hmm. of course, and like with many other trading partners. But just showing the the long-lasting trade relationships we we have, what we have had, and actually uh, what we want also to develop with other uh, trading partners. I mean, China's been uh, growing. Everyone's seen that over the last decade, two decades. It's emerged as the second biggest economy in the world. Um, and uh, its growth has been nothing short of phenomenal. Um, and you, I think of you know European goods that are going to China. I think of the appetite for Mercedes, BMWs, you know, that, that are coming out of Europe. And, and it, it must be interesting Again, coming back to that whole long-term aspect of trade is, you know, for somebody who started out their career um, in trade relations 20 years ago, they weren't really thinking about China that much. And now, you know, that, that must be most of the conversation. So it's interesting from the EU's perspective, as the EU itself has evolved and has gone through its own big developments like the euro, like adding a huge number of members from the Eastern Bloc, um, that, that at the same time, you're, you're kind of seeing a new big trading partner emerge. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that's also the interesting thing. I mean, working in trade is to see all these changes actually within such short timeframes. It, it was really in the 80s and 90s, actually, when we only started actually to speak about globalization. And when actually globalization became a kind of symbol for the free trade. And now actually, it seems that we are we are again going back to the opposite. So the history for trade, it's, it's, it's really, really fascinating. 
And it, it feels like globalization has uh, ended a chapter, if you like. I mean, a lot of people speak about its demise um, and, and the rise of populism as being a, a sign of that. But perhaps maybe it's more about uh, the evolution of, of, of it as a, as a concept that we've we've seen such a, an inc- a fast increase in uh, the wealth of the middle classes or the growth of the middle classes in emerging economies like China and India. And so uh, it's done its job, globalization, but perhaps we're dealing with some of the consequences of how that left some people behind in more developed economies like like Europe, like the US. I mean, you know, we, we, we think about the different markets within Europe, as we were talking about, there were, there were various crises over the last few years, and we're seeing a lot of upheaval socially, economically, politically. So going forward, I guess, the big trading blocks like the EU, it's, it's up to you guys to decide what the, what the path forward is. Um, and and what I like, I find interesting, you know, when when, when if Donald Trump does say, you know, I'm going to put tariffs on this, or I'm not going to put tariffs on that, or I'm going to look, you know, target China or whoever, um, that really it's the beginning of the conversation. And and I noticed while, for example, on the German side, they say, oh, we're very worried about a trade war, and then you have uh, Donald Tusk saying, well, I'm not that worried about a trade war, um, and then various people start to talk about it, and and that's the beginning of a debate about where trade is headed, what trade relations should look like, and and you you mentioned services, that's a big new factor here. We're not just talking about steel bars here. I mean, services are going to overtake goods at some point. I assume, in terms of, of, of their importance and their value? Uh, yes, at, at, uh, at least already now, the part of, of the trade is, is getting bigger and bigger for the services. And of course, this also comes with the, uh, tech, with the develop, development of technologies. Um, so it's also easier, uh, also with the, uh, with the internet and so on. So it's easier for, for people to, to look for services uh, elsewhere. In October, it was announced that US oil services provider Baker Hughes will pay $550 million for a 5% stake in Adnox drilling subsidiary. I spoke to Abdul Munim Al-Kindi, head of upstream at the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, to find out how the partnership can drive higher profitability and new opportunities for the sector. In terms of the, as we understand it from the Baker Hughes deal, I mean, obviously the, the headline figures are compelling. Um, it's, it's also the first time that Adnoc has brought in an international partner direct, give a direct That's interest right. in That's one right. of their businesses. But it seems there's a lot of discussion as well about the potential opportunities that this brings in, in terms of more drilling work. So Adnoc has already said that it's committed to doing more drilling anyway. They said that you know by 2025 conventional, there'll be a lot of drilling. You've announced um, a 53,000 square kilometer onshore, offshore seismic survey to understand what is under the ground in, in, in within within Abu Dhabi, and also you've put up blocks for competitive exploration blocks for competitive licensing for the first time. Um, that was in April. So how do all these things tie into, the? I guess, the opportunity? What is the opportunity that Baker Hughes has bought into, sure. I guess, from sure. your point of view? I, th- I think uh, the significant growth that we uh, embarking on as, as part of this transformation. So uh, in the area of exploration, we're not only Uh, exploring at uh, the pace we did in the past and the more we can contain costs associated with these developments the more we can maintain our position as a cost leader that is not uh, enough the other objective of actually uh, 
having uh, having uh, Baker Hughes is the know-how on uh, on the unconventional development. And when you say unconventional, what, what do you, how do you describe that to someone that might not immediately? Know well, the unconventional means? is basically a much more difficult uh, gas or oil that is uh, characterized by a tighter rock, a lower productivity per well. Very high well count as opposed to conventional. So is, it talk, de- is it deeper? Is it simple uh, as it that? Is, say it's, it, it's it deeper is, it, under the initial it, it maybe is, oil it, it, gas. It, it, it is deeper, uh, but I think the more thing is the well intensity. So, for example, the productivity of uh, an unconventional well would probably be a uh, thousand barrels going down to a hundred barrels. When a, uh, an unconventional well will probably uh, uh, ten thousand barrels and sustained for twenty years. I mean, I still have wells today in the conventional side, some of the big reservoirs, that can produce 5,000 even though they're 30 years. You can never hope to have that in the unconventional. And the, reason, the way you can sustain production from unconventional is by continuous drilling. So it's almost like a factory where you, 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 you are drilling 200, 300 wells a year, and you have to maintain that if, to, to have, uh, have the production that you sustain. So the you've, production. Got to, you've got to be quick. You've got to be quick. You've got to be, uh, 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 you know, contain the cost so that you're able to bring that oil to the market at a, at a, uh, a manageable cost. Finally, we looked at the shifting demographics in the world's biggest economy. Over the past decade, 86% of new businesses in the United States have been started by Latinos, with the women among them being the biggest drivers of that trend. Claudia Romo Edelman spoke to me in November about what the business community should know about the impact of these trends. When uh, I moved to America, I, I literally couldn't square the circle of like, I don't get it. The numbers are gigantic. And yet the reality is very small. The, you know, like when I look at the picture is powerful and yet we're very weak. So I, I just decided to dig into it and try to understand what is the enigma of Hispanics. And I just realized that this is the muscle of the new middle class of America, that this community that is composed by 55 million people growing. So that means it's 18 percent of the population of America. And our numbers are gigantic is 2.1 trillion dollar as a market economy and 1.5 trillion dollar purchasing power. And this is a group that is young because one in third, one in three um, Hispanics are under 18. So these are the voters of the future. By 2020, we're going to have 30 million voters uh, going into, ideally going into the polls. And the most surprising thing for me overall is that, and, and that's why I just dug into it. I, I left my job at the United Nations, which I love so much, but I was like, I, ca- I can't stop it. I've been a marketer my entire life. And if there is one marketing uh, issue that has to be solved is the beauty of the Hispanic product has to be packaged by far better so that it's not, first of all, a secret. And secondly, that we can really exercise that incredible power that we have and make America flourish uh, with the diversity of all its colors. Uh, You say you left the UN, you you had a career in diplomacy, you're a media expert, you worked in PR, um, but you essentially became an entrepreneur. And that's not surprising and given some of the figures um, we were talking about uh, before the show started, uh, one which I'm staggered by, 86% of the new businesses started in the US in the last decade are by Latinos. Yeah, absolutely. Which which is astonishing, that entrepreneurial wave 
And it, and it maybe explains a little bit about some of the upheaval in the United States over the last uh, few years. If if you're seeing such a surge of one uh, demographic coming through with those new businesses, it's it's absolutely incredible to to see a figure like that, 86%. And let me blow you away even more. Latinas create uh, small businesses six times faster than any other group in America. And that 87% of new jobs since the Great Recession makes it the job creator number one. And half of those jobs that you mentioned have been created by women. And and those literally between 2007 and 2012 made a growth uh, bigger and faster than, um, you know, like it was 70%, 70% growth versus 2% shrunk of not non Hispanic businesses. So in general, the issue of entrepreneurship is totally intrinsic to the Hispanic uh, way of living and believing. And there are other character characteristics that come along, such as hard work. 45% um, of Hispanics have made the transition between low class, uh, low income to middle income. So this is a group that is going to go and try and try and work and work. And they are also very optimistic, like 8 in 10 Hispanics would say that they would have a better future than their parents. And if you compare that number to the negative and the pessimistic perspective of other groups in America that say like, yeah, I, I'm worse than I like my parents were and the future will look more pessimistic. It's a very different take. And so altogether, the issue of entrepreneurship has to be matched. And that's why I really want to emphasize that anyone that cares about doing businesses in America should start learning Spanish and eating tacos, man, because literally <laughs> there is no way that you can. Well, I've got half you, of that. I'm eating, I'm eating the tacos. <laughs> I've got to learn the language now. <laughs> um, it, is, it is absolutely essential. Find these interviews in full, as well as all 100 episodes of Business Extra in our archives. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. We're online at thenational.ae. Thanks to all of our guests this past year. A special thanks to Assistant Business Editor Chris Nelson for his contributions along the way. Thank you for Kevin Jeffers, our producer. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, and do join us again in 2019.